enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's guest is Ruby Wiles. Ruby is someone who's from the United Kingdom, is currently running in America, had actually just changed colleges, and whose life story and running story are almost just inc- too incredible to believe. Um, as you know, if you listen to this show uh, quite often, usually I don't have college runners on. In fact, this is the first time I've ever had a college runner on, but I wanted to speak with Ruby just because This podcast is all about running kind of in the face of or because of certain hurdles, either in life or in athletics or both. And she has faced so many in her young life. And I really believe that this is a story that needed to be told. And most importantly, by her, I'm not going to give up exactly what she's going to be talking about because you really have to hear it for itself. And she's just overcome so many things in her life. She's continuing to work on many of them. And I think it's important to hear because you may have gone through something similar, are currently going through something similar, or may somebody or may know somebody who is. So without further ado, here is my episode with Ruby Wiles. Hello, Ruby, and welcome to the show. Hello, Matt. Nice to talk to you. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations uh, before you came on today. You've always been a very thoughtful listener to the show, and I've always appreciated your insight into what we were trying to do over here. And uh, I know recently you've actually had a little blog series going where you're chronicling some of your favorite uh, podcasts and running podcasts and things like that. So first of all, thank you for including me. And it's been fun reading uh, about your some of your favorite shows, which, if I, if I could ask, which running podcast or which podcast did you first start listening to? Um, it was actually a British um, podcast. Spoiler alert. I am not American. Um, uh, called Marathon Talk. It was the first running podcast I heard of. Um, I just came across it when I was scrolling through, when I was getting into podcasts, really. And from there on. And now I listen to so many podcasts and I love them all. And people are always asking me for recommendations and what my favorite podcast is. And I didn't want to have to rank podcasts or give a top 10 because I have more than 10 that I listen to and love. So I did decide to write some reviews so I wouldn't have to rank them. <laughs> well, you you did a great job. You were you were really into it, that's for sure. And I, I really appreciated uh, some of the thoughtful questions you asked me before you even got into it. So I have to ask because you're someone who I couldn't wait to talk, get to uh, talk to on this podcast because you're going through a situation now which is so unique. So as you mentioned before, you're not American. You're from the, you're you're from England, and you were a high profile recruit. You end up going to SMU, which I can't wait to talk about that recruiting uh, process for you. Deciding to come to the U.S. and then, as with every other spring college athlete, like your season was just you know taken away from you in an instant. And unlike so many, uh, you know, college athletes and specifically spring college athletes, you know, you were a, a long way away from home. And I had, you know, had a chance to talk to Jajit Taylor, the head coach over at BYU about this and her experience going through this process as a coach. What was it like for you 
just kind of the timeline and seeing things develop in terms of, you know, when did COVID-19 start to come on your radar and what was the process like for you and your teammates going from, hey, I can't wait for track season to start and winter track to end. And then all of a sudden, you know, the whole thing is shut down. Um, from a bit before the coronavirus came to my knowledge, I uh, had had a rocky start at SMU. I actually only arrived in January. So this was my first semester as well. And I had some um, eligibility issues just transferring my um, high school qualifications from the English system to a way that would be understood by the NCAA. So I had to redshirt indoors and that's basically where you sit out the season and don't compete. So I hadn't competed at all um, in the indoor track season. And so I was all gearing up for outdoor track and really looking forward to opening up as soon as as soon as the NCAA indoors was over. So middle of March, really, really early, just because I wanted to race. Um, and uh, we, at SMU, we had a girl qualify for nationals and she had, uh, that's NCAA indoor championships. And she had gone to Albuquerque for the championships. And while she was away, things started happening really quickly. Um, she left on the Wednesday along with our head coaches. So we didn't have it. Well, we being the team didn't have that our head coaches around, but we, uh, SME was one of the last schools to make any decisions about the coronavirus. So I don't think we had caught on to how bad things were going to get very early on. Um, throughout the week, um, which week am I talking about? Um, March, second week of March, really. Um, you heard rumors or like we'd heard stories that other schools had put classes online and had said that they're extending spring break and sending students home. But at SMU, our spring break actually falls, I think, a week later than most. So we were still in classes and there wasn't really, we were, as far as I was aware, until the Friday the 13th, we were all being reassured that classes would continue, they wouldn't be online, it would still be in person. And then after our coaches left for NCAA indoors, things really started changing when different conferences and different colleges started pulling their athletes out of the championships as um, really as the word spread about coronavirus almost as quickly as the virus did itself. Um, and we had a team meeting, on an emergency meeting on the Friday where we, because our coach wasn't there, we being the rest of the team collected over a, a mobile phone to talk to our coach who was away in New Mexico and she basically told us that our conference had alongside I think by this time every conference had cancelled spring sports and that the NCAA was making a decision and that as of then and then the NCAA mid phone call made their decision and uh, we were told that we weren't allowed to 
uh, have group training. We weren't allowed to have interaction with the coaches or uh, have face-to-face interaction with the coaches or support staff like athletics trainers since if group practice is cancelled, um, that is part of it. And so, yeah, really after that weird meeting, um, things changed and I haven't seen my, I I didn't even get to say goodbye to that coach because they were still away in New Mexico. So we were only told over the phone. So at that point, once this decision comes down and it's like, okay, season's over, the semester's over in terms of in-person classes, what's that process now like for you as an international student in terms of, you know, at this point, travel is being seriously hampered, uh, international travel as well as domestic travel. Airlines at this point are, you know, not shuttered, but there isn't, there isn't a lot of people. There aren't many people flying um, even locally, no, to say nothing of internationally. So what was your decision-making process once that cancellation comes through in terms of where do you go next, not only metaphorically, but physically as well? Well, that's been tricky. Um, I think at first, we obviously the NCAA came out about with a firm decision that the whole season would be cancelled. But as far as college was concerned, we were just told that we'd have online classes until April. So we weren't, it was only, um, it was a bit like all these marathons. We kept having um, postponements to when we would return to campus and resume classes until I think uh, sometime in April or end of March, maybe end of March, they said uh, the college had made a decision that the rest of the semester would be online. Um, Basically, all the students and the athletes, everyone was uh, like in, in accordance with other colleges and schools and education institutes were um, told to go home, leave campus. All the facilities were closed, um, like the gyms, the libraries, the dining halls, the re- residence halls, really. Um, everything was closed. And, yeah, you were told to leave if you could. I mean, and everyone did. And I... Um, I'm not sure if how much you want me to get into this, but my situation is quite different in the fact that in the UK, I didn't live at home with my parents. I have lived alone since I was 15. Um, I rented a room in uh, just a private, private, like a house share. Um, it wasn't a particularly willing decision to live on my own. Um, I just, it wasn't safe for me to live at home with my family due to circumstances. So I, yeah, rented a a room in a house and I balanced my high school studies and training with basically working a full-time job at my run, uh, my local running store and at a grocery store to afford to to live really, uh, pay the bills. And so when I came to America, I obviously like stopped renting that room and came to America with the intention that I would stay at SMU indefinitely. Um, 
over the summer, over the holidays, and then go from there once I'd graduated. So I was in a very difficult position when faced with the current situation um, for many reasons, but I didn't have anywhere to particularly call home. I don't really have any roots anywhere and nor do I have the financial capabilities to pay for food or accommodation or just the basics because in the UK I lived month to month I was unable really to save much um, understandably and when I came to America um, I had everything provided for me food and accommodation wise and so when that was taken away I was in a really difficult position um I am fortunate that I have some family and friends in America and well my parents had some friends so I had some very extended connections that I actually hadn't met the lady that I'm living with before I came to America um but through my godparents mother which it's a whole story in itself. Um, I was a- offered um, a room in her house. She lives outside of uh, Dallas where SMU is located. And uh, fortunately, I've been able to kind of squat in her house um, for the time being. I don't think she anticipated I'd be here quite this long. I certainly didn't either. But at least I've got a roof over my head at the moment. So when you were deciding where and if to go to college, you know, considering your background and, you know, having this, you know, forced independence at a, at a young age, and we can also talk about some of the things that have affected you earlier on in your life. What were some of the, some of the things that you considered about where to even go to college in the first place? Obviously running was important to you and, you know, having a good, you know, being part of a good team and things like that, I think are, are pretty much understood for an athlete of your caliber, but what other factors, you know, weighed heavily on you in terms of, uh, where the best place for you was going to be? Well, in the UK, I was balancing academics and athletics and I, have a very type A personality. I want to achieve as much as I can in, in whatever I do. So with academics from a young age, I had my heart set on pursuing medicine. In the UK, you can do it as an undergrad. Um, so I was all set on going to medical school um, uh, in the fall of 2019. I achieved all the high school grades that I needed and I had offers from three different medical schools and I was going to take the opportunity but in the UK the university or college system isn't set up for athletes they are kind of mutually exclusive people don't really go to well they don't at all go to university to to pursue athletics slowly things are starting to change with a few universities placing more priority on athletics but really you're going to university to study to get a degree and it's the academics are more intense than in America since we have our degrees uh, our undergrad degrees are only three years so you're in school for a lot more time and you've got a lot more work 
it's obviously not spaced out over the four years and the um, academic athletics in the UK are more similar to the recreational kind of club intramural system at universities it's not really the um, you don't have the highly competitive um, set up you don't have the the facilities or the opportunities to pursue athletics at all really um, so in order to keep training I would have to train like as if I had a full-time job so early in the mornings or later in the evenings after I'd been at university all day and it just alongside pursuing medicine which is already extremely demanding and time consuming it just wouldn't be possible for me to pursue both to the level that I'd want to um so after I started achieving some more um achieving some bigger successes with my running I was first introduced to the idea that maybe I was good enough to run in America which I'd never considered before because I thought I'd need to be winning world junior championships and being on Great Britain senior teams in order to be good enough to run in America since it's so highly regarded um but I actually had a few coaches come up to me and that had come over from America to the UK they'd come over to watch our um age group under 20 championships the national championships on the track and I won the silver medal in the 5k and afterwards I had a few coaches come up to me and that really gave me the understanding that it would be a possibility for me to come to America it's obviously highly regarded just because of the emphasis that the NCAA and college places on athletics and it's valued so much more in America than in the UK and you can live it's like that there is a setup a format for being a student athlete like it coming from the UK that's incredible the fact that colleges value the athletics and they value your ambitions athletically as well as academically it's just so different and yes sorry no i really appreciate that and i can see how you know in that setup if someone is you know really dedicated to their athletics how that college and university model would be a bit restrictive especially if the club scene there doesn't allow you to compete with you know people who you would view as your peers or maybe someone who you'd view as someone who's like i guess aspirational in a sense um you know for the vast majority of students that setup works fine but obviously for someone like you it's not quite at that level and now when you talk about okay well now i have these now i have these scholarships offers and these coaches are interested in recruiting me Oftentimes in the recruitment model, you have two different kinds of visits. And I say this as someone who used to work in college athletics for a decade. Um, you, know, you have the the unofficial visits where, you know, it's you know a student you know, a, a recruit and maybe their family or people that they know come to campus. 
kind of in a more uh, laissez-faire approach to it and to come visit and speak to the coach, but it's nothing uh, overboard. And then there's the official visits where maybe you stay overnight and you get to meet the team and maybe you sit on a class and and it's much more of an, an NCAA officially sanctioned type visit. So those are the kind of the two ways that recruits often will visit a campus. I guess the third way is if they attend some sort of camp on campus, which for some, some sports can be uh, very prevalent. Now, with you, <laughs> this process becomes much more tricky, not only from the distance perspective, but also considering your living conditions. So were you able to visit any colleges before you made your decision? And if so, how do you how do you decide which ones to visit? Because obviously, you know, one visit in of itself is going to take a huge travel time before you even take into account how long you'll be on campus. Um. I don't want to come across as ignorant, but I had no idea what an unofficial visit is until you just explained it there. (laughs) Um, I only know from my experience, I took an official visit. I I know that's what it's called now. At the time, I didn't. I was just invited to fly up to America to see a university, uh, which was SMU was the first one I was offered a trip to. And unsurprisingly I said yes please I would love to come to America um uh jokes aside I did have to uh it was a hard decision because I had to end up missing my favorite race in the UK in order to go to on my visit but I mean it wasn't a sacrifice at all um I mean it it was uh, I was upset at the time about the timings but uh I went so yes I went on one official visit to SMU. Um, it was a lot of travel because of the NCAA rules. You're only allowed to be on campus for, I think, and maybe you're on two days, maybe three. I'm not sure. So it was basically, I was traveling for longer than I was actually at um, in America for, which was stressful. Um, and I traveled on my own, so it wasn't as if I came with my parents, which was also stressful because I had to get connecting flights, and that was stressful. Um, Just, yeah, being in a big American airport, I flew into Chicago and then went from Chicago to Dallas, which was, it was a nightmare in itself. But I arrived there safe and sound and really enjoyed my visit. I came at the weekend, so... I wasn't as if I was sitting in the class. I just met the team. We ate out. I had some nice food. Um, the team showed me around. I went on a campus tour. I met with the coaches and just saw the amazing facilities. And after that visit, my mind was blown because I, I'd never, I'd never been to any colleges in America. Um, and if you think of Harry Potter and the kind of his, historic castles, kind of cold and uninviting, that's kind of what British universities are like. How dare um, you say that about Hogwarts, Ruby? How dare you? Oh, no, I just mean the kind of... <laughs> I, I, I don't think Hogwarts is cold and uninviting at all, but it's very uh, traditional, uh, historic, and... It's not very modern or warm or inviting. And so you certainly don't have 
huge athletic fields and shiny, sparkling buildings with locker rooms and all this incredible gym equipment or the facilities at SMU were, I'm sure they're very similar to what a lot of universities in America have. I can't even quite comprehend that myself right now, the fact that other universities look similar. Um, but it was more than I'd ever seen. I, I'd only seen a campus in the movies and it looked exactly like what you see on film. And I've had the I've had the chance to be on SMU's campus a couple years ago, and I can speak to exactly what you're saying. It really is remarkable. And SMU is also um, for a smaller school, specifically, especially in, in Texas, it actually is very, very well funded and actually draws students from across the country. In fact, they've had they've done a lot of recruiting up here in New England, especially in, say, the Fairfield County area. And they've had a great, you know, a lot, a lot of funding going into sports and um so I, when you describe it that way, and I actually had a chance to see your picture of in the in the cryotherapy tube in, in their facilities, it's like you you see that, and you know certainly you know Division three and Division two and low level Division one athletes aren't going to be used to those kind of facilities, uh, that's for sure. But you know you see a place like SMU, they really do spare no expense when it comes to athletics and it really is remarkable. It's such a beautiful place. I mean, you're just outside of Dallas. You're actually right down the street from where uh, George W. Uh, Bush's house is, you know, you're like, you know, like half a mile drive from that area of town. So it's, it's in a, you know, certainly a very high end part of Metro Dallas area. And, you know, when you're on this, when you're on this trip, so you're, you're going on your recruiting trip and, you know, for the people who are listening, you know that, you know, I don't talk to college athletes on this show very often. So actually, you're, you're the first one we've ever had on the show. But given your background, how much did you weigh, you know, your your gut intuition in terms of how much of a fit you would be socially with your potential teammates and your coaches and the student body at large compared to just the, you know, whether or not you'd fit in as a runner? Um, before I answer that, I just want to go back, backtrack a tiny bit. Um, the flashy things aside, like the cryotherapy, even the basic things like an athletics track is something that universities, not all universities have in England. Um, in America, like there's a middle school down the road from where I'm staying now that has a track. High schools have tracks. Universities always have tracks. Like in, in England, that doesn't exist. Like, I don't know any middle schools that have a track. I know maybe one high school that does, and it's a very, very um, expensive school. It's one of the best ones in the country. Um, and like I said, not all universities have a track. Um, so, so even those kind of things is incredible to be living 400 metres from a track. Um in regards to how I thought my social situation would fit in with SMU, I was naive and I, in hindsight, in hindsight, very naive and ignorant to the demographic of students that typically attend SMU. I wasn't aware of it at all. Um, so it wasn't something I considered and I certainly should have done. And that's definitely a regret of mine. Um, for People that aren't aware, SMU tends to attract uh, 
not a very diverse student body. It is a very expensive school to attend if you're not on scholarship. And so you end up with a lot of pampered um, kids from well-off backgrounds uh, that have a lot of parental support and financial backing and are perhaps entitled, (laughs) feel entitled. Um, It wasn't a... It wasn't a factor I even considered before I arrived. Um, So no, I I wasn't aware of that at all. I, yeah, went in very naive. Um, Throughout the recruiting process, I was kind of alone. I did it by myself. Like, I didn't have my parents helping me. So perhaps it would have been something that they picked up on if they, they might have mentioned it, if they'd been around, but they hadn't. And it wasn't something I considered. Um, I think my head was kind of blown by the facilities, the campus. I I went on a lovely warm weekend in October. The weather was gorgeous. Um, The boulevards and the roads were tree-lined and green and grassy and it was literally looked like it was out of the movies. So from when I stepped on campus in my head I was like wow this is amazing and then coming from the UK where like I said I basically worked full-time and still wasn't able to save any money um I lived month to month to pay my rent afford food and bills and things like that and to be told that I could have all of that paid for I could have a gym membership for the first time in my life because I just couldn't afford it in the UK. I could get apparel and shoes. That That's something that now I struggle to afford. And in the UK, I certainly struggle to afford. So to have all of that at my disposal, I was, where do I sign? Can I, can I come now? Um, yeah, I was just a very excited, um, naive young girl but a young woman but felt incredibly lucky and I, I still feel that way now so once covid hits season's over and you're left scrambling trying to find a place to stay and live and trying to determine what's next um you know spoiler alert i uh, you know you you have some news for us about exactly what's next but what were some of the things that you had to kind of work through to decide not only if SMU was still a good place for you, but what were some of the factors that were most important to you in terms of, you know, your place in collegiate life, both from a social standpoint, support network and running? For sure. I mean, I have news, but I don't know who who's listening that will is particularly excited by it because I don't think it's as if people have been following along in anticipation of this groundbreaking news. Um, but I made the decision to transfer from SMU. I want to stay in America, but I just didn't fit in with a lot about SMU. The, the, the opportunity, don't get me wrong, was incredible. And I could see myself continuing to thrive there over the four years. And I... I'm so lucky 
for everything that they offered me. I don't regret any of it. But when COVID hit, I just have, (laughs) understandably, a lot more time alone and a lot of time to really do some self-reflection and self-discovery, just work on myself and think about how happy I am. Um, I had had a rough time at SMU, just, just adjusting to life in America and I had some struggles um, with my eligibility and academically just getting settled really um, and I went into like I said I only visited one school on a trip and after the first visit I forgot about considering other options I was all in on SMU and I was very naive to the NCAA and hadn't realized how many different opportunities there are out there I thought maybe there were 10 or so teams in the NCAA and that all of them make nationals all of them have rosters full of talented distance runners and sprinters and jumpers and have all events covered and I hadn't even questioned that I wouldn't have people to train with or anything like that and after some thinking I just felt in my gut that I would be happier somewhere else um in England I'm from the countryside I love being out in nature that's why I one of the reasons I run is just to explore and to be at peace with my surroundings and that was the pain of my existence in Dallas every run was on the pavement and the city streets and it just wasn't exciting me to get out and log miles and it also transpired that I didn't have that big group of teammates to train with I think SMU has a lot of very talented girls but They just weren't in my events. I'm very much a 5k, 10k athlete and there just wasn't that collective group of other long distance runners uh, for me to train with. And so in the UK, I trained on my own. And so I ended up coming to America having a not too dissimilar experience. Um, I had people around me, but It wasn't as if we were working out together. Um, So I found that difficult and I came to America to be part of a team and I want to, I want to be part of a team that succeeds together. I want to be part of a team of women lifting women up, supporting women and raising, like raising the standard of everyone. And I knew that if I was going to find that, I had to leave SMU. So I made the decision to transfer. Now, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you kind of alluded to you know rough times um, in the past growing up, and you've shared things with me um, prior to this conversation, um, just about you know mental health and eating disorders and, and things along those lines. And you've been very open with me. And, and we talked prior to this conversation about whether or not you'd be open to share some of this. Uh, so first of all, thank you for doing that. Um, you know, you, in our conversations prior to this, you talked about how 
you know, for you at even at a young age of 11 and 12, that you struggled with a lot of the things that have kind of come to the forefront um, in terms of, you know, people trying to be more open and honest about, you know, body positivity and also trying to bring and shine light on um, some of the things that affect especially uh, women's runners and women's runners at younger ages that can affect them long term. Um, if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about your own past experiences uh, in the under the guise of, you know, how not only how it went th- how you went through it at the time, but how you view it now uh, removed a little bit from some of those experiences. For sure. And I feel like the only reason I, I feel like I can share um, some of the struggles that I've had in the past is because of other people sharing. Um, I think some conversations that I've listened to with Mary Kane, Molly Seidel, and Kate Lando was very brave on Mary Frioli's podcast. Um, they've made me feel like the value of me sharing my story is greater than the shame that maybe I felt for going through it. And I want to share it. Um, not, I'm still processing quite how to go about it delving into everything fully I I don't think I'm at the stage in my mental health journey where I can sit back and say this is what happened I'm fine now um but I'm definitely in a better place than I was so thank you to all the people that have shared their story really um because without them starting I wouldn't be talking right now so when I was 10 or 11, around that age, I first started, I first developed an eating disorder. I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. Um, and it was, uh, it was not related to running. At that age, I was not a runner. I had grown up a swimmer, but not at, but I wasn't obsessed with the swimming. Um, so my struggles with food didn't correlate to the typical runner wanting to be lighter to run fast kind of thing. Um, I think for me at that age, it was a struggle with understanding my place in the world and coping with a lot of change and um, hardships at home. Um, my home life has never been straightforward it's i've i've always had a difficult relationship with my parents and i don't want to talk too bad about them but some of the way they've treated me has scarred me um mentally uh, physically um And I think at age 11, I was kind of in that stage where you're maturing from childhood and I was the eldest child. So I've always been a bit more cognizant of what and of what's going on around me. So I was kind of in that stage where you're not an adult, but you're not really a child. And uh, I'd moved schools and I didn't have many friends and my dad had just met a new woman uh my who's now my stepmom who was very much 
of a what's stereotypically a beautiful glamorous physique she's slim and gorgeous and at that age at 11 I saw my dad's attention and his love shift from what was me and my siblings to this woman and I thought that if I looked more like her in terms of if if I was skinny and obviously at that age I thought skinny meant I would be beautiful maybe he would love me more and I'd get some more attention from him not that I'm attention seeking but just all of a sudden he'd gone from being my dad to being a man I knew I, I didn't know um and like I said it was a period of change I my dad had met this woman I just moved schools I was 11 at that kind of stage in life and I didn't have much control over anything really um my home life was always changing as a family there was quite a lot of um arguing financial stresses um physical violent outbursts by my parents and just a lot of chaos and I think that food was a way for me to have some control for me to take some power and some ownership over something in my life when I in my mind at that age I didn't have control over anything and so that coupled with my desire to get my father's approval and to get his love really led me down a very treacherous path really where I lost a lot of weight very quickly and ended up almost killing myself through not eating and I ultimately ended up in an inpatient unit um a mental health hospital really that was an awful time in my life um when you're going through an eating disorder I think it would from my experience Um, And from what I've heard other people talk about, for a long time, you don't realise you're struggling. You don't think you have a problem. You you have a lot of anger because for me, I was using food in in one aspect as a way to control. Control not just what I ate, but how I looked. And I wanted to achieve a goal, like, albeit a scale-based goal or a daily calorie goal. I, I wanted that thrill of achieving a new goal. And to have people around you frustrate that goal and block it made me very angry. And I had a lot of emotions and I didn't have an outlet, really. And so it took a long time for me to come to terms with the fact that there was something wrong with me. Um, even though I was in hospital, there was clearly something wrong if you're in hospital. It took a long time for, yeah, uh, it's, mental health is so, it runs so deep in the mind. It's not a superficial problem. When you're in the depths of your struggles, you, most of the time you're not aware that you're struggling. 
it's only in hindsight that you can look back and realize how what a low place you were in um I took out a lot of my anger and my frustration and my sadness on my body um through not eating and trying to I would self-harm quite regularly I attempted suicide when I was 13 um I was just very unhappy with my place in the world and I didn't see a purpose and that is something I haven't talked about or thought much about really recently um for someone so young to think that is is incredibly sad and I kind of feel some disconnect between me now and me then because I've matured so much and changed so much that it's sad for me to look back and think that I might not have been here because of decisions I made at 11 or 13 and who knows what's going on at 11 or 13. And you're obviously an extremely introspective and bright person and I can uh, just just listening to you now talk about this. I can imagine how you want to just wanting to deal with it yourself, and especially considering your home life at that time. Um, you know, you certainly didn't have a lot of stability around you. So, what was it like for you to get to the point where um, you could offload some of this pain? And struggle you were going with or going through and, you know, talk to, you know, whether it's the doctors or nurses or medical care professionals uh, in and around you at that time and even later on in your life to help you go through this process in a way that wasn't simply a solo act. It almost makes me <laughs> uh, kind of smile at how in our short conversation you've already seen that I'm that kind of independent person and yeah at first I didn't appreciate that there was anything wrong and I I didn't want help for anyone I wanted to do this on my own I yeah didn't want to let anyone into my life um I have had to be fiercely independent just because of like I've never really had a parent figure there for me looking out for me so all of a sudden with people wanted to get, take care of me I was kind of confused I didn't know why someone would want to take care of me and it came across as, as if they were meddling in my life and I just didn't want any of it um so yeah for a long time I refused all help really um and I think I came to an all-time low when I was in an impatient unit and I was just kind of finally understood that I wasn't going to leave or be allowed to leave the inpatient unit unless I quote unquote recovered or got my mind and my body to a certain place where it was safe for me to leave. I, yeah, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to live a life, any kind of life, if I didn't start accepting help. Uh, it's sad that it took for me to get to that low to realize it but I think 
uh, accepting that you had a problem, that I had a problem, that something was going on is as cliche as it is. It's the first step in getting yourself out of that hole. And now that you're, you know, in America, away from, um, you know, your friends and whatever support systems you had over in England, and now you're going to be moving again uh, in the near future uh, up to Adam State. What are some of the things that you try to do to set yourself up for success uh, just from a mental health perspective? I think I am, well, I know I'm very fortunate in the fact that my eating disorder and my mental health was not related to my running. So for some people, they can become so intertwined and entrenched that you can't have a healthy relationship with one without a healthy relationship with the other, if you know what I mean. So for me, they're kind of independent of each other. So running was never really a reason that fueled my eating disorder. So at the moment I am using, running's always been really positive for me. Um, it, It is my way of mentally escaping. Thing. maybe that's makes it a negative thing then um but it's it's a release for me and so at the moment and in the UK it's not as if I ever really had a huge support system in the UK I've kind of developed my own coping strategies and ways to cope which just kind of come around to I do a lot of reading writing and running really the three R's um and yeah, so at the moment I am, oh, and routine, another art. I'm, I've created a routine for myself. Um, just simple things like I go for a run in the morning, come back, have some breakfast, uh, do some writing, do some reading, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, have a nap if I feel like it, go back out and run in the evening and come back and have something to eat and, uh, do some stretching, some core work, something like that. Just I just make a loose routine each day, and that helps keep me mentally well because I feel I feel productive. I feel like I'm getting stuff done each day, even if it's stuff that I've set myself to do. Um, and yeah, running's really invaluable for me. All right. Two more questions. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for your candor uh, during this conversation. Your thoughtfulness is astounding. And I really appreciate you going into detail on so many of these topics. Um, I guess what advice would you give to two different groups of people, uh, either young athletes who were in the same position or similar positions as you were in terms of dealing with um an eating disorder or uh, and or some mental health uh, challenges. And then secondly, if someone is, you know, an ally or friend or family member of somebody in that situation, they want to help, but they want to do it in a way um, that doesn't push necessarily that individual away from them. And uh, you kind of mentioned before how, you know, you didn't want help and you felt like the people who were getting in the way of your, you know, your, your unfortunate pursuits on some level. My master plan. Exactly. Yeah. I I think you said (laughs) they frustrated your pursuits. (laughs) Um, and I don't mean to laugh. It's kind of like gallows humor in a sense. Uh, but that, that, that really frustrated you. Um, 
And obviously that can be difficult for someone who's trying to act in a caregiving or, or friendly way. Uh, yes, how would you advise both of those groups? Looking back, um, they did the right thing. I mean, you can't let someone like <laughs> kill themselves in front of your eyes. Like that would be the wrong thing to do. So, so no, look, I'm smiling because like, I was obviously very mentally unwell, so I didn't realize that my actions were negative and they were doing absolutely the right thing. And I owe my life to their actions if they'd listened to me and to what um, deranged stuff was coming out of my mouth in terms of like not wanting them to help. Yeah, there's a good chance I wouldn't be here today. So I I thank them. Um, They had a very hard job trying to do the opposite of what I wanted to do um um i think the first i will answer your second one first second bit of advice first in relation to someone that's close to someone that's going through an eating disorder or mental health issue i think first and foremost the person needs to be safe the the athlete or the uh, young person going through it, it uh, they need to be safe and help like mentally or uh, physically more than anything. So their physical health has to come first. So if they are in a position where they are extremely undernourished or just physically at, if, if their physical health is very severely at risk, you need to intervene regardless of whether they want the help or not. Um, I mean, you'll regret it if not, um like at some point if it unfortunately if it does get that severe where their life is at risk or their future uh you've got yeah you've got to think of that long-term future above how that person is acting or often people can act very angry or violently even when they have these mental demons and yeah you've got to put their physical health first but secondly, if they are not quite, if they have not quite deteriorated to the stage where their physical health is compromised, I think you need to be very kind of the opposite. You need to not try and be controlling, but be understanding. Um, you need to be accepting of what they're going through and not, and not angry. Um, I think when people don't understand eating disorders or mental health, it can come across as if they're angry. Uh, that you are struggling just because they don't understand. It's hard to wrap your head around why someone would not want to eat. To someone that doesn't have an eating disorder, you're like, food's great. Food's yummy. Why, why wouldn't you want a burger? Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want this? But to someone with an eating disorder that comes across very kind of accusatory and like, yeah, as if someone's accusing you, oh, you won't eat a burger. There's something wrong with you. And that makes you angry. Um, I don't know if that, any of that makes sense, but I think you just need to be accepting of what the person's going through and not trying to actively stop them engaging in the negative behaviors, not actively, but kind of like proactively. I don't know if that makes sense. Like you shouldn't be trying to force any change on them or force them to act differently you need to encourage them to see 
that there's a better way for them to act or think, if any of that makes sense. Like the person themselves has to be the one directing the change, the healthy change. Um, they have to realize that there's something going on and they have to want to get help themselves. You can't force help on anyone. Um, more likely than not, if you try that, they will get in a worse place because they'll reject it. Um, and to an athlete or young person struggling with an eating disorder or mental health issues, I think the first thing is you're not alone. You, you're still normal. There's nothing wrong with you in terms of like, you're not an alien, that you're normal. Okay. Um, and there is help out there. You, you don't have to feel this way forever, that there is a way out and it's not the way out you think. Life's worth living and it looks different each day. Like recovering is like getting a new pair of glasses. All of a sudden you see the world through a different place. Or it could also be seen as like people that are struggling are wearing foggy glasses and you need the help to get the glasses removed, but you can get the glasses taken off. Like you can get that fog cleared and you will see the world differently. Um, it, yeah, it, it doesn't have to be this way forever. Ruby, thank you so much for sharing your insights and perspectives on all of these topics. You've been an absolute wonderful guest and best of luck to you this summer and next year at Adam State. Thank you very much, Matt. Ruby, thank you so much for just sharing everything that you shared in this episode. Your openness and thoughtfulness and frankness is truly remarkable. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who just thanks you over and over again for everything you expressed in this episode. It really was uh, truly remarkable. Also, big ups to our sponsor, Prevenex. They sponsor every episode. I can't thank them enough either. And I know so many people have trusted them as their supplement brand after hearing them on my podcast or now sponsoring Lindsay Hines' podcast as well. And it's because we trust them implicitly. So go to Prevenex.com and use code RUNNER15 today to save 15% on your first order. Thank you so much for listening. I got some new podcasts coming out this week on Patreon. If you aren't a Patreon subscriber, it's really simple. You just go right to patreon.com forward slash rambling runner. The link is in my bio. And then at that point, once you choose one of the tiers that you want to be involved in, say the $5 per month tier, you get two episodes per month with popular guests that I've had on before. This is kind of like a follow-up episode. Like, all right, where are you now? What have you been up to? And basically, it's so simple to use. You just press a link, and then it, then basically you subscribe to that feed on, say, Apple Podcasts, as an example. Uh, I don't think it connects to, uh, not Stitcher, but uh, Spotify. There it is, Spotify. Uh, but it does connect to Overcast or Apple Podcasts. So it would just show up in your podcast feed, just like any other podcast that you have. So you don't even have to go on the Patreon website or app after that first time subscribing, which is really useful. So I use it to get a number of different uh, on-demand podcasts. Lindsey Hines, Mario Fraioli's one he does with Billy Yang are two examples of that. They just show up right in my podcast feed. And you can have the same thing. So go to patreon.com forward slash rambling runner to see for yourself. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. 
Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.